Welcome to the Skype a Scientist Live podcast. Today we're going to be hearing all about astrophysics from Athena Brentsberger. Athena has a really unique path in science. She was studying science but realized that communication was her passion and she decided to pursue both. She's also a model. Some people apparently really do have it all. Athena is a super enthusiastic astrophysicist so I'll hand it over to her now. Okay, hello everyone. Hey, uh, so my name is Athena Brensberger. Um, I'm super happy to be here on Skype a Scientist. Um, I'm going to give everybody just a couple of minutes to, to come on into uh, the live stream. Um, but I am so stoked to be here and I'm really excited. I hope you guys are ready to talk about some awesome space stuff like galaxies, star formations, planetary formations. Um, I am super, super excited. So uh, hello again, my name is Athena Brensberger. Um, I also am known as Astro Athens. Uh, that is because that is my website and also my YouTube channel. So I actually consider myself to be a science communicator. Uh, and that is because I started with my YouTube channel and I've branched out to going to different museums and going to classrooms and talking to kids about space exploration. Um, and also by making my educational videos um, on my YouTube channel as well. So to give you a little bit of background, um, I actually studied astrophysics at the College of Staten Island out here in New York City, uh, which is actually where I am right now. I'm out here in Brooklyn. And um, oh man, it was, it was so incredible because at the College of Staten Island, we actually had an observatory with two incredible telescopes on the campus. Um, I was observing things like solar flares. I was learning how to track asteroids. And that's where I spent most of uh, my years doing research. So actually what you guys see behind me, um, this is actually one of my research posters, uh, which was on protoplanetary disks, which I will explain in uh, just a couple minutes what that exactly was. Um, and that was just such, such amazing research. I did it under the NASA Space Grant and the National Science Foundation. I conducted research for about three years in astrophysics and uh, propylids, uh, which is the acronym for protoplanetary disks. Um, amazing, hello, Judith. Oh, welcome all the fourth graders. Oh, I get to class at uh, Andover Elementary from Orlando, Florida. Oh, you're on the space coast. That's amazing. I hope you guys are gonna catch some, some launches soon. Uh, and I'm sure you've already seen some amazing launches. There's quite a lot coming up. We're living in such an exciting era of space exploration and space travel. Um, so uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what my poster was, uh, this was at the Hayden Planetarium. So if any of you guys have had a chance to come out to New York City, we have a huge museum known as the American Museum of Natural History. And there is home of the Hayden Planetarium. So there's a whole bunch of cool research facilities there. Um, in which I was uh, grateful enough to actually be one of the research students that was there. And that's what my research is behind me. So all these crazy pictures here, these are known as something, uh, something known as propylid. So propylid is, is such a fun name. I actually love it. Propylid, uh, it's uh, a really, really awesome name. It stands for protoplanetary disk. And an easy way to explain that is pretty much it's the formation just before something like a solar system formed. So what we live in, so we're, we're on planet Earth, we're made up of a solar system of other planets. So we have neighbors uh, like Mars, we have Mercury, Venus, uh, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, a very, very bright, bright star. 
So what's found out in the rest of our universe, like in this, for instance, this is a scarf of mine. Um, this right here actually is the Orion Nebula. And the Orion Nebula is actually where I did my research. So for those of you guys who look up in the night sky at night, if maybe you have a telescope like this, um, you don't even actually need a telescope to see the Orion. You look up at night, you'll see three stars in a row that looks like a belt. And it's surrounded by four other stars. That's known as the Orion constellation. It's a winter constellation, so you guys can definitely see it now uh, in, in the evening sky. And just underneath the three stars in the belt, if you look close enough, you don't need a telescope or binoculars, but if you look close enough, you'll see a little blurry blob under that. And that's actually the nebula. That is the Orion Nebula. And a nebula, it, this is the coolest thing ever. It is the remnants. So what happens after a star dies, when you have a really, really big star and its life just a few few million years it will explode either via supernova and then um, its outer regions will actually start to turn into this cloudy cloudy type of thing just like this known as a nebula and there's other types of nebulae actually nebulae is the plural form of nebula there is a planetary nebula so if you have a giant um, massive uh, red red giant star uh, when it dies it actually just puffs out its outer layers and then that forms into a nebula. And what's cool about this is even though you just had a star that died, what's amazing is all of its materials, all of its matter, then becomes seeds for new stars to form. So a region like this, a lot of times is referred to as a stellar nursery. So you think about it, a nursery, uh, like where there's babies, you have like a baby nursery. If any of you guys have little siblings, little brothers or sisters, um, you have a nursery, which is where the babies are. This is a stellar nursery. So this is where newborn stars are, are formed. And it's so cool because they're formed in the leftovers of another star that died. So pretty much what my research was on was um, looking up all these new stars that were forming. And when they form, they start to spin really fast. Like they're, they're young, they uh, have lots of energy and they're spinning really, really quickly. And what happens is when it's spinning quick, just like if you were in um, like on the beach uh, or you're in a dusty, like you're in a playground and you're in a dusty area with lots of uh, dirt and you start spinning really quickly, all of that dirt is gonna start to kind of like tornado around you. It'll start to turn. That's what happens in space. So what starts to happen is you have all this dust that you know is are the seeds of new life forming or new stars, and it starts to then coalesce. So it starts to form a disk around this newborn star. And why that is so important is because this is where the potential for planets to form, new planets. And if new planets form and they're found close enough to their star where they're, they can be warm, maybe an atmosphere can form, then possibly life can also form. And one of my biggest passions about space travel and astrophysics, astronomy, is trying to find life beyond Earth. That was always, that still is one of my biggest missions um, in being a researcher and studying astrophysics and exploring the cosmos. Because, you know, we have life on Earth and the way that we formed, it was just so extravagant that there has to be other ways out there. So that's, that's what you kind of see here, actually. So let me get a marker. Well, actually, I'll, I'll use this. This is like a little disco ball. Um, so 
if you look here, this is like right where you have a star that had just formed. And then if you guys look up here, this dark area right here, that's actually the dust that is starting to form around there. I hope you guys can see. I'll bring us a little bit closer. Okay. So if you look perfect one right here is you could see the white part is actually the star and the little black region around it. That is the dust that's starting to form a disc right around this newborn star. And that is, is, is so important because this dust, what can start to happen is over time, it starts to combine with each other. It starts to collide and things can start to form and, and spherical objects can start to form and then eventually planets can form. Um, so oh, another good example is actually right down here is a diagram explaining what the protoplanetary disk is. So you see the newborn star right there. And then you have a disk that's forming around it. And then you have something known as a gas bubble. And I always love to use a pair of socks to explain this because um, it, it's just so much fun. So actually, I'll, I'll keep it uh, folded up because that explains it a lot better. So let's pretend that this is the gas bubble that's around it. It's kind of teardrop shaped. And that's because when you're in a region like this, you see how there's all these other stars that are around here. There's so many other stars. They're all neighbors. They're all close to each other. And some of them are bigger than others, just like how humans, we're all different sizes. Some of us are tall, some of us are shorter. Uh, we're all different sizes. Stars are the same thing, actually. And what starts to happen is you'll have a nearby star that's maybe a lot bigger, and it is giving off, let's say this is the star. I have a rose quartz here. And this is giving off a lot of energy a lot of, it's spinning fast, a lot of solar radiation is what it's called, um, or stellar radiation. Solar radiation would be for our sun. Um, that's pretty much just stuff that comes off of it, charged particles, because it's a big ball of plasma. And that will then start to impact this, you know, newborn disc that's starting to form. What my research was on was trying to measure the distance between this newborn, like, protoplanetary disks, so uh, about to have a, a new disk forming, trying to measure the distance between that and the nearby, nearby massive star. Because I would want to make sure that it's far enough where that solar radiation isn't impacting it too much, causing it to uh, you know, blow away all of the ma material and matter. But I want it to be close enough where it still has some, some heat that can allow for, for the planets to form. So that's, that's pretty much the bulk of, uh, of my research. Um, it is a bit uh, complex. I, I hope you guys were able to understand that. Um, but it's, it's such cool stuff. And um, I've always been so passionate about wanting to study astronomy and the cosmos. And um, that's what actually led me into the path that I'm on now. So what I ended up doing, actually, a little bit of a, a side information was while I was actually conducting research at the Hayden Planetarium, um, I also started a career in fashion modeling. So um, just a little side note, I actually was pursuing both that and science. And that's because I always loved the theater and art. And I, I don't know how many you know science fans there are out there or science fiction fans. How many of you guys love Star Wars or Star Trek? Well, there's such a similarity between science and art and film production and theater and, and science. Um, when you think about it during like uh, Galileo's time and the Shakespearean time, all of these generations, all these eras 
were so inspired by the night sky and then storytelling. So that's what brought me to what I'm doing now, which is going out. I've created my YouTube channel and science communication, I think, is so important because there are so many incredible scientists and researchers that are making discoveries on a daily basis that are impacting our lives um, continuously. And sometimes we're not aware of it. Like for instance, my phone, this, the technology that's in it is incredible. And, and a lot of it was actually developed early on from like uh, early NASA missions. One of my favorite things that was developed um, through NASA that we actually use today is uh, in medical technology. Um, like uh, m mammograms to uh, detect breast cancer. It was actually discovered because um, the Hubble, which was, you know, it's, it's up in space. It takes, it takes am amazing images like this. This was from the Hubble Space Telescope. And it takes these incredible images. But right after it launched, there was uh, some issues they were having with the lens. It was a little bit blurry. And all the images were coming back blurry. So NASA got all of their best computer science uh, engineers and their software engineers to try to troubleshoot the problem. Well, once they figured it out, the technology that they developed for the Hubble Space Telescope to actually get sharper images was ended up being used in hospitals for detecting like cancer very, very early on, earlier stages than we were able ever able to detect. And that saved so many other lives. So there's so many amazing things like that that actually come out of um, uh, come out of, of NASA and research. Amazing. So um, yes, I just got an incredible question. And I do have another question early on that I'll, I'll touch on in a little bit. It talks about time, um, time travel. But I got a question here from Skype a Scientist. Do you think there's something about space um, that makes for good science communication from Andrea? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that Space specifically is just so astonishing and it's so glamorous that we, I feel like we don't even have to, as humans, do anything to make it seem cooler than it is. I mean, look at this jacket, <laughs> look at this scarf. I think that space in itself, um, it, it brings a sense of wonder to all of us. Um, I think that, you know, Carl Sagan said it the best when he said, we are all just stardust. We are star stuff because we are, our bodies are made up of all the same elements as stars in the night sky. And so there's always this sense of wonder. And I think it, it really goes in well when it comes to science communication, like Bill Nye the Science Guy or Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, and it just, it's so exciting. It's so much fun. Um, so I do want to uh, jump on a question really quickly before I get to this next one in the chat. It was a question I had gotten earlier. It's from Alan Bettig. It's a really great question. I can't wait to get on this with you guys. And he asks, I have considered time to be just another dimension that started expanding with the Big Bang along with other spatial dimensions. I'll explain that in a second that trying to move back in time would be like trying to reach the point where the Big Bang started. We can't get there because of the expansion of the universe is at the speed of light. The dimension of time is expanding at the speed. The best we could do is stop. What are your thoughts about this? Um, so I actually have a wipe off board right behind this. So I'm going to unplug my quickly and um I can't wait to talk to about this with you guys. So let me just transform this really quickly. Okay. 
All right, perfect. I uh, just want to make sure you guys can still hear me, which is good. Just let me know if you if you are unable to hear me. Just let me know. Um, okay, so what Alan here is asking is, um, how can we move back in time? One of my favorite questions because I love talking about time travel. And then he talks about um, he mentions if we were to start at the Big Bang and we just stop moving, would we hypothetically be moving back in time? So let me first talk to you guys about um, dimensions before I get to my wife on board. So he says time is a dimension. And then he says um, compared to the other spatial dimensions. So let me explain with that really quickly with you guys. Spatial dimensions, for an example, we have three dimensions of space. So we would have this going this way, going this way, and going this way. So that's like left and right, forward and back, up and down. Three spatial dimensions. And then time is a dimension as well. So we have time as its own dimension, which is constant. It's always moving forward. I mean, it is uh, time. Time is relative, but I won't get onto onto that right now. Um, yeah, I, I will in a second. Then he says, um, hmm. he goes, starting at the Big Bang, right? So the Big Bang right here. So before the Big Bang happened, we have a point of singularity. We don't know what happened before the Big Bang. There's hypotheses out there. Uh, Professor Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, was working on something known as the No Boundary Proposal, which spoke about um, there potentially being uh, an already pre-existing state of existence before the Big Bang happened that then started time. Well, right now, we'll just say there's a point of singularity. Then at about 10 to 36 seconds, after the Big Bang happens, so Big Bang, woo! Okay, sorry, I'm getting really animated. Um, you then had inflation. So we're gonna call this inflation right here. It's literally just like um, like you're, you're inflating a balloon, right? So um, this right here was at about 10 to 36 seconds after the Big Bang was when inflation happens, so things started expanding. You then had um, time begin. Then um, the universe kept expanding. And so there, there was a dark ages where nothing had existed. And then eventually stars started to form. We have dark matter, dark energy. Uh, I can get onto that as well if you guys want. And then galaxies form. What he's asking now is, is it possible to move back in time, but you'd have to move at the speed of light? So to uh, run that through with you guys, <laughs> the speed of light is, let me see if you can see that, yeah. 300 million meters per second. Um, and for those of you guys that uh, maybe uh, aren't, haven't learned the metric system yet, so for the fourth graders, but have you guys been in a car? If you've been in a car before, you're familiar with miles per hour. Usually the car's moving around 50 miles per hour. The speed of light is about 670 million miles per hour. So you would be moving really, really quickly in your vehicle if you wanted to move at the speed of light. Now, the way that we measure a lot of things in the universe is through, uh, like distance, is the speed of light, something known as a light year. The Milky Way galaxy is known as 100,000 light years in size. That means it would take you 100,000 years to move from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other end of the Milky Way galaxy if you were moving at the speed of light. Now, we can't move that fast. 
So that's something that um, a lot of theoretical physicists are working on when it comes to something known as quantum teleportation. Those of you guys that might have seen um, the Star Trek, you're probably familiar with quantum teleportation. And that's pretty much when you see them, they go into a chamber and all of a sudden they, they, uh, their body like disintegrates and then they're reassembled somewhere else. That's pretty much what we would have to achieve. So Alan, to answer your question, I love this idea. Um, what he, he's asking is if, let me erase this really quickly. He says, if you have time, which is moving like this, right? And then you have, uh, we're going to say Alice and Bob, two people. So we have Alice, which is right here. Alice, can you guys see that? No, you can't. Let me get another marker. Alice is blue. Okay. So Alice, she decides to stop moving in time. And that's what Alan brings up. He says, what if Alice stops moving in time? And then you have Bob. Oh, you can't see that either. Sorry, guys. Okay. Then you have Bob. And he continues moving in time. According to Bob, it's going to look like Alice is moving back in time because Alice has stopped moving. Meanwhile, Bob is still on his spaceship and he's still moving throughout time. But if Alice somehow developed the technology to stop and, and be stuck in the present moment, she technically, according to her, would just be paused. She wouldn't be moving back in time. She would just be stationary. But in retrospect to Bob, she would be moving back in time. So to answer your question, Alan, if you were to just stop moving in time, according to you, everything would just look like as if it's still moving forward and you would just be stuck. But according to everybody else, it would look like you're moving back in time. So it's more of a decision of whether you wanted to move back in time or not. Um, and if you did want to actually try to travel, you'd have to move faster than the speed of light. Um, but in order to do that, we would no longer be matter. We wouldn't be made up of what we actually are. And what I mean by that is when you start to move so fast, you then are converted into energy. You are moving so extremely fast, you become like light energy. You literally become photons. You have you you are no longer at your atoms cannot be binded to each other because you're moving so quickly and so fast that it then breaks and you become just highly charged particles. So if you were moving at the speed of light, would you really be still considered yourself or not? I don't really know. We haven't achieved it yet, but I think it's a great idea. Okay, so um, let me plug back in my headphones and read through these questions. Um, that was such a great question, by the way. Okay. Um, ooh, this is a great question. If you had an unlimited amount of time and funding, what would you want to explore in space? Oh, I would love to try to explore a black hole. I think that there's something so mysterious about black holes. Um, and I mean, again, unlimited funding and unlimited time, that would be perfect because to even travel to get to a black hole would probably take a while. I mean, it will take a very, very long time. Um, but then also the amount of technology we'd have to develop to actually come close to a black hole, um, not actually be there. Would, I would rather send the robotic mission would be awesome. So to run through with you guys, a black hole, 
Um, hmm, let me think. I have a pair of leggings here. So I'm going to actually do a really fun experiment that I usually like to do. Um, let me see. How can I tie this up? Okay. All right. So let's say that this is the fabric of space. So um, this is a pretty simple explanation. Um, I actually use this quite a lot. Let me just get my leggings tied up. Okay. <laughs> so this would be considered the fabric of space-time, right? So we got it as a singular plane. We're just going to call it as one plane right now. And uh, a black hole pretty much is you have a, 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 an area of gravity where there is. So a black hole, uh, to give you a bit, a bit of an explanation, you have a star that collapsed into a black hole. So you have, there's a few hypothetical ways that a black hole may have formed. Um, a supermassive black hole is if you have a very, very intense, massive, massive star, billions and billions times the mass of our sun. Um, what can happen is it can either um, expand, explode via supernova. And what would be left over is its, its core, the core of the star, which is like where all the nuclear fusion goes on. It's where um, it converts elements into new elements to actually have the star exist. Well, what's left over usually is its core. And what can happen is when it's, it's uh, either dense enough, it can then collapse into being a black hole. So after the supernova, if there's enough energy, it could collapse into a black hole. There's other, a few other um, theories about how black holes may have formed early in the universe from something known as a dark matter halo. And a dark matter halo is so cool because right around our galaxy, you have this region um, that is made up of matter that has gravity, a gravitational pull and a gravitational force that we cannot see. We can't actually detect it. Uh, we, well, we, we can detect it. We can't visually see it. But we are able to measure its gravitational effect on other stars around the galaxy. That's known as a dark matter halo. Scientists very recently, actually, it was only about a month ago, um, were able to create simulations way back early in the universe, the computer simulations, at around 350 million years after the Big Bang. Now, 350 million years might seem huge, like a lot of time. But when you think about it, fun little examples, when you're like three years old, and you are just anxious and ready for your birthday to come or a holiday to come. It feels like it's taking forever for it to show up. And then by the time it shows up, it feels like it flies about, it flies by and all of a sudden the day's over. And then by the time you're maybe a teenager, um, it feels like, you know, your, your days are just dragging on. So t time sometimes can really be different depending on who the person is. Well, on a cosmological scale, it's similar to that time it can be can feel like a blip for a black hole but really to us it's millions of years it's it's more than one of our lifetimes so um going back to to about 350 million years after the big bang scientists were able to simulate the what was happening in these dark matter halos and what starts to happen is when you have regions that are dense enough that um have a lot of uh, matter and have a lot of gravity, it can collapse into itself and a black hole can form. And what that's actually going on here would be as if this, let's just say that this is super massive. It actually is the black hole. So yeah, as you can see, it's warping space time. Let me tie my legging a little bit tighter up here. Okay. Now something else that's fascinating of why I would want to study supermassive black holes 
um, is because I want to try to figure out, um, are we going to ever be able to detect wormholes? And what's what's going on with wormholes? So a wormhole, uh, well, the best way to explain that would be as if you have two points in space, let's say right here and right here. And rather than traveling from point A to point B, let me make that a little bit more visible for you guys. Rather than traveling from point A to point B, so from one star to another, or say we want to go from planet Earth to exoplanet uh, Kepler-39b, uh, say we want to go there instead. Instead of having to travel along a singular plane, if you were to find a wormhole, you can potentially fold the fabric of space-time, creating a shortcut. And I think that that would just be so, so fascinating um, to, I mean, just to develop the technology for that, to be able to explore that. I think we'd be able to not only answer so many questions, but the type of, of technology that would just advance humanity, I think would be so significant. Because uh, if you go around a black hole, this ties in with the time travel thing, right around the black hole, the way we're able to see them, because it's black, how can you even see a black hole? Is because right around is something known as the event horizon. And the event horizon is a collection of stars and different um, matter in the universe, dust and gas and icy materials, all this fun stuff. It's being pulled in by the, the gravity of the black hole. So what we're actually able to see is kind of like where you see my fingers as. This would be the event horizon just around the black hole. And this is, it's spinning so extremely fast in here that the gravitational pull is so, so strong that if we're able to potentially send a spacecraft to go right around that or some type of robotic mission that won't get pulled in by the black hole, or maybe eventually we could go inside the black hole, see what happens, um, which uh, we have some theories as to what would happen. But hypothetically, if we could send a robotic mission, I think that would be so fascinating because if you start to travel around the black hole and some theories talk about if you travel backwards or along the opposite direction of the black hole, you might be able to actually time travel. And that's, a, that's an interesting theory. Um, it does get very, very theoretical. Um, so anyway, I'm going to uh, um, look at some of your questions. Uh, these are great questions, by the way. Um, this, is, this is really fun. Okay. Um, so, well, the age range for most stars, it really does, uh, it ranges quite a bit. So um, we have uh, our own sun, which is uh, just around like five billion years old. We have um, some other stars that it comes to, well, I would have to explain it through the HR diagram, which stands for the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. And it shows all the different stars in our universe. Um, so we have stars that can maybe only live for a few uh, billion years. So uh, that's like a, a very short age. They will live very quickly, uh, very, they'll, they'll be very hot, young, fast, they'll die very fast. Most of the time, those are the, the exciting stars in our universe, universe that we'll see. Those are like um, the ones that will probably explode via supernova. And then we have um, uh, stars that can live just around 500 million years. We have, we have there's quite a, a wide range, but um, generally it's, it's between those, um, th those averages. So a few billion years to um, a good uh, 10 to 20 billion years uh, old. We have some, oh, and then we have low mass stars. 
So one of my other uh, research posters, which I, I have folded up, but I won't pull it out right now, was on low mass stars. So brown dwarfs. And these are interesting. Uh, some people don't call them stars because what happened with them is these stars or these, these objects, their core, remember I mentioned nuclear fusion earlier, their core has cooled down so much that it no longer is able to sustain nuclear fusion, meaning it's no longer able to uh, convert hydrogen into deuterium, deuterium into helium, and so on and so forth. And that's important for stars. So that's what usually what defines what a star is, is when its core is still converting these elements to then produce the elements in the star, the heat, the plasma, and then, um, you know, the, the uh, different like ejections of like solar flares, like what we have, what we see on our own sun and the solar flares, when that happens, that can interfere with Earth. And that's what causes the northern lights or the auroras that many of you guys might have seen images of. So um, uh, with brown dwarf stars, they are so important because we've been finding a lot of exoplanets around them. And what I mean by an exoplanet is another planet that um, we find in another system, planetary system. It's like a solar system. The reason we call it a planetary system is because uh, versus a solar system is just because we actually called our star the sun, hence the name solar, and we call it the solar system. When we look at other systems, we usually call them just planetary systems. Um, but let's just get into the specifics of it. So when you look at these planetary systems, um, if when you have a low mass star, what's good about it is you can have planets located closer to it. Uh, an example is the TRAPPIST-1 system. Um, and I'll actually draw this out for you guys. So we have the TRAPPIST-1 system, which is um, a low mass star right in the center. Actually, I might unplug these headphones. So you got, erase all of this, okay. So you've got a low mass star, right? We'll say that's the low mass star. The TRAPPIST-1 system has seven planets orbiting it that are found. Okay, so we got seven planets. So we'll say planet here, planet here, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, so um, I kind of like do it like that. Okay, so it's kind of a messy system, but I think you guys get the point. The TRAPPIST-1 system has seven different um, planets that are orbiting it, and three of them are found in a region known as the Goldilocks zone. And those of you guys that know what the Goldilocks um, uh, tale is all about, who, who Goldilocks is, um, pretty much these three of the planets right here are Earth-like. So three of those are actually Earth-like. They're about the same size as Earth, and um, they're just around the same composition. And they're found in a region. So I'm going to highlight this region right here, right here. That's known as the Goldilocks zone, also known as the habitable zone. And the habitable zone means it's not too far, not too close to the star for life to form, possibly life. 
We're not too sure right now. Nothing's been detected. Um, but because they're close enough to its star right here, they have just enough heat coming off of the star to potentially actually um, allow for the planet to, to form an atmosphere. And um, it's not too close where it's going to be like totally deep fried, like I like to call it Mercury, um, you know, where it's really, really close to our sun. But it's also, it's not too far away, like these planets, where they would just be totally cold. They will be so cold that probably no life can even form. So this is known as the TRAPPIST-1 system. And it's so exciting because it could be close enough to the low-mass star where, um, where an atmosphere might actually form and, and possibly even life. So there's research being done on it right now. And then um, on the Hubble Space Telescope, um, TESS, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Uh, it's an awesome spacecraft that's up in space right now. And then there's going to be the James Webb Space Telescope that will be researching it. Um, okay, so let me see what else. These are great questions. Okay. Um, so I'll go through with this question. If there's nothing really in space, how does light how does light move through nothing? Does light speed uh, light does light speed change going through space um, or our air on Earth or is it constant? From Christine, okay, Christine. So um, the thing is, I know that space might look like a whole lot of nothing, but there is quite a lot of something that actually makes it up. Um, there is a, a lot of of empty space that is throughout it. But just like how I use my leggings before to kind of explain the fabric of space, um, this, the, the universe is made up of kind of like if you were to look at it as like a grid. So you have, or like a matrix, you have all of these layers of stuff that actually makes it up. And this is inter, the interstellar medium. The interstellar medium is what would be considered, first of all, past our own um, solar system. So just beyond uh, the Kuiper Belt, oh, which I totally have to talk to you guys about, um, Ultima Thule, which happened on New Year's Eve. I'll touch on that in a bit. Right past the Kuiper Belt, you have all of this, this, this space. And a lot of the universe is actually made up of something known as dark matter and dark energy. Now, dark energy actually makes up about 68% of the universe. And um, dark energy has an outward force. It's an energy that's pushing outward. Expands so rapidly and so quickly. And it's, it's, it's an energy. It's an energy particle. We're able to measure it. We can't see it because it is dark, but we're able to measure it. And then there's dark matter, which is an inward force. So that's what's not allowing our universe to co totally like... So you have dark matter that's made up of um, in most of the universe. And that's about 27% of what makes it up, of what makes up our universe. And we're able to measure this. It's a whole bunch of um, matter that, like I said before, dark matter halo that goes right around the, uh, the, the galaxies that we're able to actually detect. And that's what allows for the galaxies to, to rotate um, in different directions. Um, and, you have all of these, these um, regions, and that's what actually causes the gravitational effect in our universe, not allowing it to, like I said, expand too much. So light is constantly traveling throughout all of this. And also, you know, the, the rest of the universe is made up of all this other stuff. So you, me, uh, galaxies, stars, life as we know it, and that's what makes up the rest of the universe. 
But all of this stuff, illuminated matter, um, that's what causes light. And so that's what really travels throughout the interstellar medium. That's what travels throughout this my legging, you know, and it's constantly reflecting off of um, things. And why dark matter is so peculiar and, and scientists are researching so much on it. Uh, actually, a really great friend of mine, um, uh, Sophia Nasser, is a particle physicist that's working on this research right now. And she, um, you know, it, it, they're, they're trying to figure out still the physical properties of dark matter because it's still uh, a big question mark. It's still unknown, but it's what makes up most of our universe. So um, to answer your question, Christine, um, the, the light does still move throughout the universe. There is still an interstellar medium um, that really does make up most of space. And um, does light speed change going through space um, on our Okay, so. So as far as light speed, um, that is a constant, which is why we say uh, C equals, and then, like I said, um, you know, three, uh, sorry, 300 million, uh, 300 million meters per second. So we call it, we refer to it as C because it is a constant. So it does not change. Um, we could talk about time potentially changing because time is relative depending on where you are in the universe. Um, but as far as uh, the, the speed of light, that is a constant. Um, just to answer your question, Christine. Okay. So um, let me see. So uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah um, McAltney. Oh, yeah, Sarah. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> um, are all stars made of the same thing as our star? So, yeah, our sun, um, our star is made up of the same elements that we're made up of, that's made up of the rest of the universe. But, um, like I mentioned before, nuclear fusion, which is in the core of each star, uh, it does vary. It varies just, just slightly. So, you have the core of the star, like in here, and you will have um, hydrogen. Uh, you have all all of the same elements, hydrogen. Uh, what happens is you have like, so you have like two hydrogen atoms. Those then combine, turns into deuterium. Those combine, and then that turns into um, helium. And so inside of the star, um, although they are different temperatures, different colors, um, some may have more elements than another, it is still the same, the same composition when it comes to the universe uh, in, in general, as far as a constant goes. Um, and our sun, uh, you know, it has the same behavior as a lot of these other stars. It has solar flares. It has um, coronal mass ejections, which is that the, the corona, which is when if you guys ever saw um, a solar eclipse, a total solar eclipse, you have, um, let's refer to this as the sun again. Okay, so you've got the sun. And a solar flare would be when you have um, a region on it. So like a, 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 so you have like a dark spot right there, right? That's a, a sunspot. We'll call that a sunspot, that like dark region right there. That is extremely hot. It is like bubbling up plasma there. There's all of these charged particles that are ri like rising up from the core. All of these charged particles that are coming up from the core of the sun um, up to this really, really hot region. And it's just bubbling up, waiting to explode. And then that would explode into a solar flare. Then you also have, um, like I mentioned, the corona. So you have coronal mass ejections. So the corona is right around here. So when you're looking at a total, total solar eclipse, 
you guys might have seen that. That's actually where we get this from when we draw a sun. Is that part? That's the corona. Um, and this part is what was covered by oy, the shadow during the uh, solar eclipse. So this was all the shadow all right there. And that right there is, is the corona. And what also happens is plasma will be ejected off of it occasionally when it comes to enough, when there's like enough charged particles, um, enough photons, it'll actually eject out plasma from the sun. And I think it's so important to talk about space weather because this affects um, everything. And this, is, this can affect Earth. It can affect um, the our astronauts that are on the International Space Station right now. There's people in space. Um, it, it can affect so many things. Our communication satellites, our phones. Um, it can affect also like when we see, like again, those northern lights I mentioned earlier, or the uh, aurora, what that is. Really fun thing, actually. Um, the swipe off board is getting a bit messy, but <laughs> there's so many cool things to talk about. I'm going to draw Earth for you guys. So we'll call this Earth. So Earth has an electromagnetic field. So this right here is what protects us from the sun. And this is because we actually have a, the North and the South Pole. So um, our electromagnetic field, these, this is actually what's protecting us. It's, it's, um, we have our own charged particles. Um, that are that's being emitted from this from from Earth, and it combines with when a, a solar flare happens. And what then happens here is this comes in contact. So we have all the charged particles from the sun comes in contact with the charged particles from Earth, which is in our, our electromagnetic field, and this causes the northern lights, which is what we see um, in so many places. You can see it in like Detroit. You could see it in. Um, Canada and so many beautiful places. So such cool stuff. Um, let's see. Okay, so a uh, Judith, this is a great question. If a star dies, does the entire planetary system around it also die? Uh, that can be a yes and no. It kind of varies on what the star is. So like I mentioned earlier, when I said that there was a low mass star, um, most of the time, a low mass star like that, like a brown dwarf, was is actually a cooled down star. It's like a failed star. It pretty much is um, when you had a, a star that maybe once was producing nuclear fusion, once was hot and um, like this and like our sun, and it might have cooled down. It came towards the end of its life, um, but instead of exploding via supernova or expanding too much, it just cooled down, stayed around the same size, still emits a bit of heat, but not too much. And if that's the case, then the planets can still be there. But most of the time, when you do have a, um, a, a star like, oh, like our sun, our sun is going to uh, eventually expand into um, a red supergiant star. So it's going to start to expand. The more it expands, it's going to engulf Mercury and then Venus and then Earth. And it'll just keep expanding. It's going to engulf all the planets. So that a lot of times will happen because um, when you have a planet that's along the main sequence, um, main sequence stars are um, actually around a region of stars that are like just in the middle, middle, around the same, around a middle uh, rather than what I mean by that is uh, I mentioned the uh, young hot stars that live really quickly and die really quickly and are really, really hot and explode via supernova. And then you have 
the the red giant stars that are really really big well you have kind of these in-between stars those are known as the main sequence so the in-between stars which is our sun it's one of them um most of the time those will live for a good amount of of years around like uh, 10 to 15 billion years will start to expand and then they'll start to engulf um, all nearby planets, matter, anything like that. Um, and then it'll expand into a supergiant and then either puff out its outer layers into a planetary nebula um, or yeah, most likely it'll do that. And then its core will be left over and it'll be uh, unstable. It'll probably either be like a white dwarf star um, or potentially even a neutron star. It depends too on, on the mass of the star. Um, that ties in actually with, uh, so let's talk about how it keeps expanding, expanding, expanding. Um, the Kuiper Belt. I really want to talk to you guys about what happened on New Year's Eve. Uh, we had the New Horizons spacecraft, which was a spacecraft through NASA that left Earth in 2008. And it just passed by one of the furthest objects in our solar system, known as Ultima Thule. And it looks like a peanut. It is hilarious. It's, I'm gonna just kind of draw it here for you guys. Um, so much stuff to erase. I'll just kind of do that. So Ultima Thule, it, it literally looks like a snowman. Um, it looks like that. And um, oh man, it's so cool because it's found in our Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is this region just past Pluto. So I'll say Pluto for now. I, I'm a, I know there's a lot of debate between whether Pluto's a planet or not. Um, uh, I actually have a really good friend who's a planetary geologist as well. And there's a planetary geologist coming on Skype Scientist this Thursday. So she, oh man, she, I bet she's going to talk to you guys about Pluto. I think it would be so exciting. So just outside the orbit of Pluto, you have the Kuiper Belt. And the Kuiper Belt is this region of all of these um, uh, rocky materials, asteroids, um, you have comets, you have uh, like big rocky pieces that look like that, that eventually formed into co coalescing to form planetesimals. Planetesimal is the the um, material just before a planet forms. So you have this thing that started to kind of combine different like rocky materials. They start to coalesce and, and form something. And then a planetesimal is just before it becomes a planet. It's about to become a planet. So what's so exciting about this is th these things are so old. This thing was, was around at the dawn of our solar system. Like right as Earth started to form, right as all the planets started to form and, and, and going past it and flying past it and seeing it before, um, you know, seeing it as it is where it, it didn't form into a planet is like looking back in time. It really is, is like looking back at what our early universe was like, or what our early solar system was like. So um, this is uh, just around um, 6 billion kilometers from Earth. So it's really, really far out. Um, it's, it's about 1.5 billion kilometers from Pluto. So it's really, really far. And um, it's just so cool because it's, it's what started to form um, the, the, the Earth that we walk on. It's what started to form all the planets that we walk on. And um, researchers are still working on that now. And oh, man, it's, it's so cool. 
So um, let me see if there's any other questions. Otherwise, we're we're just at about an hour. Um, so let me just double check and see if there's any other questions. Otherwise, we can just go ahead and wrap up here. Um, let me see. Yeah, I think I pretty much got through everything. And um, this was like this was so awesome. Um, I wish I could see you guys, <laughs> but but I, I, I could feel your presence. Um, this was just so much fun, and I'm so glad I got to be on here and talk with you guys about space and science. And um, there's just so much I think that we have to keep exploring. And the universe is so vast and complex and beautiful. I mean, just looking at this, uh, it's just. It's it's such a it's such a beauty, and uh, I think that we have to keep exploring. And it really starts with you guys, with um, those of you that are in school, and those of you that are just starting to look up at the night sky. You know, like start to um, explore more, ask crazy questions. I had someone ask me on my Instagram the other day um, if cereal is considered a soup, and I'm like, that's a great question. Is it? Because it's it's in a bowl. Um, it's a liquid. And, and there's cold soups out there. I've had cold soup, actually, buckwheat noodles at Korean restaurants. And I'm like, is it considered a soup? And um, other amazing questions like uh, time dilation, moving back in time, do other dimensions exist? Um, and I think it's so good that we have to keep staying curious and keep learning and keep exploring the cosmos. So um, thank you so much, guys. And also, yeah, thanks so much. I'm glad you like the jacket and the NASA shirt. And then I have a little martian uh astronaut here that's supposed to be mars but um thanks thank you so much and uh, i had such a great time and um thank you again yeah if you guys want to look up any info on me um my website is astroathens uh all one word dot com um and i hope to um see you guys again maybe maybe i'll actually see you this time <laughs> thank you so much i hope you all have an incredible afternoon all right bye guys thanks for listening to the skype a scientist live podcast I just wanted to remind you all of a few things. One, we have merch on our website at skypeascientist.com. We've got t-shirts um, with all different kinds of uh, designs. And we also have stickers available that you can purchase. We have tote bags. Um, and really, our entire program relies on either donations or merchandise. So you can uh, check that out on our website. You can also donate directly. Uh, we're now a 501c3 nonprofit, so you can get all of your donations tax deducted. Um, and you can do that via PayPal at paypal.me slash Skype a scientist or patreon.com slash Skype a scientist.